like to have you turn with me to the book of Job. And we are going to look here very carefully at this first and second chapter of Job. Interesting because God here calls Job perfect. And when I read this, I said, if God can call Job perfect, I want God to call me perfect. And I said, how did Job get in such a relationship that God sees perfect? And so I began to study, and as the Lord revealed it to me, I believe that he's given me a formula here that can help many. Um, in the first chapter, in the first verse, it says, And there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And then as we began to look at the sixth verse, and there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, when God said that Job was perfect, right after this we find that, um, that there was a committee meeting in heaven, and as all the atoms of every created world came, comes to this committee meeting, because that's what God has done he he lets each atom of every world represent be a representative and he sits in on these committees and as they meet in this committee i mean there is one that appears to and that's that's satan and a dialogue begins to develop because the chairman of the board is jesus himself he looks across the, the boardroom and sees this man this angel of darkness sitting there and he said where have you been and the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and cheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Did Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him? And about his house, and about all that he hath on every side, thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thine power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And then it gives a, a, a list of the situations that began to immediately develop. As you know that um, Job was probably one of the richest men in the world at that time. He had great herds of cattle and sheep and goats and camels. And um, he had a lot of servants. And uh, he was considered by the worldly standard to be a very, very wealthy man. Immediately, his financial picture begins to change because now God has given him permission to do anything he wants except take his life. And so uh, things began to go wrong. First of all, the bandits run off all his cattle, his sheep, and his goats and camels, and that's his wealth, so he's broke. Uh, the next thing that happens, the, the children are in the house uh, having a... A, a party and uh, the roof collapses, a wind comes up and the, the house is torn to pieces and, and the children all die. 
Now you can imagine the trauma all this of happening, bang, 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 it all happens there. You can imagine the trauma that you would be in, lose ten children, lose all, all your wealth, everything, lose your house, everything, there's hardly anything left. And uh, through all of this, we find that as we read in the 21st verse, uh, in the 20th verse, Then Job rose up and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolish. So as he went through this tragedy, I mean, uh, many tragedies, he came through it still praising God and didn't charge God foolishly. The second chapter opens up with this. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, the devil had the right to attend these committee meetings because Adam had been the prince of this world, but when Adam failed, he lost his princeship, and Satan became the prince of this world. And that his ability to, to go to heaven and attend committee meetings to represent this world continued on through 4,000 years until the cross. And then Jesus brought the princeship back. And Jesus now is the prince of this world. And in committee meetings, Jesus stands up and answers for this world. But in the second chapter here, we find another committee meeting takes place and the devil is at the committee meeting. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro upon the earth, and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and cheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Put for, but put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hands, but save his life. So went Satan from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. So the devil went immediately from, from that committee meeting, and he went to his laboratory, and he mixed up the worst concoction that he had, and he put it on to Job, and Job now is suffering with boils from the tops of his head to the soles of his feet. Now, I don't know how many of you have had those things, but let me tell you, they're very painful. I had them where you sit down, and let me tell you, it was miserable. You don't, you're not comfortable in any position. They hurt, and they hurt bad. And this poor man now has them all over him. He's covered with them, and he can't even stand his clothes. He's sitting out under a little tree, and he's got a little cloth wrapped around him, and he's standing there, he's sitting there, and he, he takes a potsherd, what's left over a broken pot, and he scrapes these ugly sores, and it's then this wasn't enough. Uh, poor sister Job is in a terrible trauma. She doesn't understand what's going on. And finally she says to her husband, curse God and die. <coughs> and then the the devil goes and gets three of his best friends, and they come and sit around him, and they said, Job, you must be a horrible sinner. What did you do? And then as you turn to the 23rd chapter of Job, the 10th verse, and Job gives this testimony, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
if my foot hath my foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept, and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So when the when the trial was all over, when the devil has done everything that he could to destroy him, to destroy his confidence in God, and to get him to sin, we find that he was able then to give this beautiful testimony of his assuredness that God was his Master, his deliverer. Now I began to look at uh, this, these, these uh, chapters in Job, and I said, God, teach me uh, the secret that Job had, because Job evidently uh, had a tremendous formula working for him that kept him from sin, that God could say that he was perfect. And so as I read through, I came to the 10th verse, and it says, the devil is talking, and he says, Hast thou not made a hedge about him? So the dialogue seems to be centered around this hedge and uh, about his house and about all that he hath. On every side, thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. So I said, Lord, what is this hedge that we, you're talking about? And so I began to search through the spirit of prophecy because I believe that God is going to reveal all the the questions that you are necessary for yourself, soul salvation. And I believe that if Job was perfect, it's important that we understand why he was perfect and how he was perfect. What do you say? Yeah. If we want to be perfect. And I found the answer. It's in the book Education 76-77. It says, So far from making arbitrary requirements, God's law is given to men as a hedge, a shield, whoever accepts its principles is preserved from evil. Fidelity, fidelity to God involves fidelity to man. Thus the law guards the rights, the individuality of every human being. It restrains the superior from oppression and the subordinate from disobedience. It ensures men's well-being both for this world and for the world to come. To the obedient, it is a pledge of eternal life, for it expresses the principles that endure forever. So what is the shield? What is the hedge? It's the righteous law of God. And this is what Job had as a protecting force around him. He was surrounded by that hedge. And the devil could not penetrate that hedge. And it bothered the devil. Because God should have been able to name off hundreds of people that he could say, have you seen this one? Have you seen that one? Have you seen... No, but it seems like that Job was the only one he could talk about. Tragically. And the reason that God could talk about Job is because he'd gone in the hedge. And it says here in Council to Teachers, 454... What a God is our God. He rules over his kingdom with diligence and care. He has built a hedge, the Ten Commandments, about his subject to preserve them from the results of transgression. And then from the little book, uh, Mount of Blessings, page 52, we read this inspired testimony. It says... In obedience to God's law, man is surrounded as with a hedge and kept from evil. He who breaks down this divinely erected barrier at one point 
has destroyed its power to protect him, for he has opened a way by which the enemy can enter to waste and to ruin. So what we haven't understood, dear friends, that God has a hedge to protect every sinner who calls out in the name of Christ to be protected. And the only way that you can get into that protection, that hedge, that shield, is to give your will to God. In the book Steps to Christ, um, page um, 47, we read this inspired statement. It says, what you need, many are inquiring how I am to make the surrender of myself to God. You desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power. In slavery to doubt, controlled by the habits of your life of sin, your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you, but you need not despair. Praise the Lord. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. Everything. Your daily life, your daily walk with God, your, your, everything that you're involved with, your salvation, depends on the right action of the will. You see, God cannot interfere with your will. He never has, he never will. In volume 5, page 514, We read this statement. It is, of you, it is for you to yield up your will to the will of Jesus Christ. And as you will to do this, God will immediately take possession and work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Your whole nature will then be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Even your thoughts will be subject to him. You cannot control your impulses, your emotions, as you may desire, but you can control the will. And you can make an entire change in your life. By yielding up your will to Christ, your life will be hid with Christ in God and allied to the power which is above all principalities and powers. You will have strength from God that will hold you fast to his strength and a new light, even the light of living faith, will be possible to you. Will you not without delay place yourself in the right relationship to God? Will you not say, I will give you, give my will to Jesus and will do it now and from this moment be wholly on the Lord's side? Disregard custom and the strong clamoring of appetite and passion. Give Satan no chance to say you are a wretched hypocrite. Close the door to Satan. Will not... Satan will not thus accuse and dishearten you. Say, I will believe, I do believe that God is my helper and you will find that you are triumphant in God. By steadfastly keeping the will on the Lord's side, every emotion will be brought into captivity to the will of Jesus. You will then find your feet on solid rock. It will take at times every particle 
of the willpower which you possess, but it is God that worketh for you, and you will come forth from the molding process a vessel unto honor. So, what is it? What is our part? Is giving the will to God every day. Waking up in the morning, first thoughts come to your mind, give your will to God. And as you do this, immediately the fortress is placed around you. The, the, uh, the righteous law of God becomes an impregnable fortress. We read in Desire of Ages, read in Desire of Ages, page uh, 324, this inspired statement. It says, when the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of a new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work, bringing a supernatural element into human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world, and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies, listen, is impregnable to the assaults of Satan, but unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. We must be inevitably be under the control of one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for the supremacy of the world. It is not necessary for us deliberately to choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. We have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and will make it his abiding place. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart, listen, through faith in his righteousness. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, and temptation to sin. We may leave off many bad habits, and for a time we may part company with Satan, but to him... Without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to Him moment by moment, we shall be overcome. Without a personal acquaintance with Christ and continual communion, we are at the mercy of the enemy and shall do His bidding in the end. So what happens now is that when we make a commitment to God, as you did today, Immediately with that must go a commitment to give your will to Him. And that commitment has to be reinstated every day and through the day that you keep your will with the Lord. And when, you, when the Lord has your will, you have His righteous law as your protection. And it is said that it is an impregnable fortress. The devil cannot penetrate it. And that means that you cannot then be tempted more than you're able and with every temptation, Jesus promises a way of escape, and he says you will be able to bear it. Is that what the promise is? In 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and on. And so, we must understand then that the Job was, had an impregnable fortress around it, and that impregnable fortress was God's righteous law. And that righteous law, my friends, can never be penetrated unless God, and you can't be tempted when you're in that impregnable fortress without permission. The devil cannot go farther than God will allow him to go. 
And God says you will not be tempted more than you're able. And with that temptation you will have a way of escape and you will bear it. Now, this righteous law that God puts around us as shields us and protects us from the enemy, as I read here in 130 of the book uh, to know him, uh, we read this. How can we reach the perfection specified by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great teacher? Can we meet his requirements and attain to the loftiest standard? We can, else Christ would have not enjoined us to do so. He is our righteousness. In his humanity, he has gone before us and wrought out for us perfection of character. We are to have the faith in him that works by love and purifies the soul. Perfection of character is based upon that which Christ is to us. If we have constant dependence on the merits of our Savior and walk in his footsteps, we shall be like him, pure and undefiled. Our Savior does not require impossibilities of any soul. He expects nothing of his disciples that he is not able to give them grace and strength to perform. He would not call upon them to be perfect if he had not at his command every perfection of grace to bestow upon the ones whom he would confer so high and holy a privilege. Our work is to strive to attain in our sphere of action the perfection that Christ in his life on earth attained in every phase of character. He is our example. In all things we are to strive to honor God we are endangering and falling day by day so far short of the divine requirements. We are endangering our soul's salvation. We need to understand and appreciate the privilege with which Christ invests us and to show out our determination to reach that highest standard. We are to be wholly dependent on the power that he has promised to give us. Beautiful. And as we contemplate that, friends, as we begin to see that God only has one standard, and that standard is perfection. Now, God doesn't have two standards. He has one standard. And that standard is that if we give our will to the Lord, it means that we're going to be in a growing process every day, and we're going to grow and grow in our experience until God can trust us with his seed. And he'll put his stamp of approval on our character's and say they're safe to send. And we must remember that, that as we enter into this great process of character development, we must realize that God is ever working with us through the Holy Spirit's power. There is never a moment in the day that the Spirit of the Lord does not stand with you to, to strengthen you and to help you if God has your will. But if he doesn't have your will, then there is, you have limited to what God can do, you see. This is what has created what we know as the yo-yo experience of the life. You ever know what that means? I mean, one day you're up, the next day you're down. You ever have that, that, that problem? Well, that, you see, when you don't, when God doesn't have your will, you have all the determination you're going to do it, but you don't. But when God, when, you, when God receives the will because you've given it to him, then he can do all things in you as long as you let the, your will be his. 
in all that you do and say. And so the Laodicean condition is the yo-yo experience. It's up and down, up and down, up and down. And we have good days and then we have horrible days in which we just blew everything. And I'm going to tell you something. Some of you may not believe, but I never have a bad day. I have some better than others. But I never have a bad Because you can't have a bad day with Jesus. Is that right? You can't have a bad day with Jesus. So I never have a bad day. Oh, I've made mistakes. That's true. And my wife reminds me of them. Praise the Lord. But let me tell you, friends, that instantly, if I made a mistake, I want to get it right. And I, you see, you don't sin while God's got your will. I mean, you've got to take your will away from the Lord, and then you sin. You see? So you've got to make an intelligent decision. That you, do, you want to do your thing rather than God's. And, and immediately when you take your will away from the Lord, I mean you're in a vulnerable position. And then the promise that the Lord has made, you'll not be tempted more than you're able. That promise is not there. It's only there when your will, God has the will. Do you understand that? Only when God has the will can He extend that promise to you. So when you give your will to God, then you have the promise. You can't be tempted more than you're able. And with that temptation, God will make a way of escape, and you will bear it. But if you take your will from the Lord, then the devil has absolute direct access to you. He can do anything he wants. Except maybe take your life. And the, you see, when, you, when, when, when your will is gone, then uh, is taken from the Lord, then you're in a very vulnerable position, and the devil will just kick you like you can't believe and the, when we find these things happening, when our day is all going wrong and we're finding we can't control things around us, we better take stock and inventory immediately because it's probably because our will has not been with God during that day. Now, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that, that uh, the devil doesn't have access to you. It, yes, he can tempt you, but he can't tempt you more than you're able. And uh, the, the devil, yes, will put you to the test. He will do everything he can to get you to weaken yourself and to take your will from God. But if we believe, no matter what takes place, <coughs> that we can stand there and believe that God is our protector and that the righteous law is surrounding us, that we have an impregnable fortress, that hedge, that shield is there, and God has promised we'll not be able to tempt it more than we And in this beautiful relationship, my friends, I believe this is what the disciples learned. This is what all the great men of the Old Testament, the New Testament learned. They learned how to keep their will with God's will. And then they accepted everything that happened. No matter what happened at that point, they knew it was God's will. Now let me read from Ministry of Healing. Uh, 489. <clears throat> the 
the Father's presence encircled Christ, and nothing befell him but that which infinite love permitted for the blessing of the world. Here was a source of comfort, and it is for us. He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. Whatever comes to him comes from the Savior, and who surrounds him with his presence. Nothing can touch him except by the Lord's permission. All our sufferings, all our sorrows, all our temptations and trials, all our sadnesses and griefs, all our persecutions and privations, in short, all things work together for good. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen whereby good is brought to us. So when you're in the hedge, when you've given your will to the Lord, no matter what takes place that day, you can be sure it's God's will. And God is using these temptations and even tragedies and sufferings and sorrows to perfect the character. As long as we're in the hedge, we can believe with all our hearts that nothing's going to happen to us that is not God's will. You see that? Nothing can happen to you. It's not God's will when you're in the hedge. Even death, even death itself can come to you and you can accept it because you know it's God's will. Now that's a little difficult for some to understand. But let me tell you, friends, the, 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 the mystery of salvation is explored here very definitely. We must understand it very carefully and prayerfully. God wants us to have this great experience in Jesus Christ. He wants us to surround us with that righteous law, that great hedge, that impregnable fortress. He wants us to have victory in our life because He's depending upon you and I to be witnesses of the power of God and what God can do in sinners. And the reason that we failed so many times that we didn't get in the hedge. We let the old man come back to life when the old man should be dead. You read Romans 7, Romans 8, and Romans 6. My friends, the carnal heart is enmity against God. Is that right? And if, we, if we're not in the hedge, it's because we're God's enemy. Because all his friends are in the hedge. And we must, my friends, if we're going to endure through the time of trouble, it is about to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise as Ellen White brings forth in volume 8, 315 and volume 8, page 37 and 28. She says it's coming as an overwhelming surprise. If we're going to endure through that great shaking and that tremendous time of trouble, my friends, our only hope for survival is to be in the hedge. Am I right? Because let me tell you, you're going to have to deny your senses. You're going to have to deny what you see. You're going to have to deny what you feel and touch. Because the devil is going to come down to us as a, as a lion roaring in the church. And to those that have this experience, he's going to concentrate his efforts. And he's going to do everything he can to get you in a position of where you'll give up. And your only hope is holding on. Is to have this experience in Jesus Christ. To let your will every moment of the day be God's will. And whatever takes place, accept it. I've had some tremendous tragedies in my life. As I look back upon what happened to my son. The Lord was teaching me these things. While he was in Vietnam. While he was fighting, fighting his battle, I was fighting my battle back home. And when I came to the understanding 
of these tremendous truths that God had, then I could accept his death. And know that God never allows anything to happen to us unless it's for our best good. Now, what is our part in all of this? Do we do something? In Sons and Daughters of God, page 30, beautiful little book here, by inspiration, it says, It is God that causes the light to shine into hearts. A living virtue in the Holy Spirit is to combine with human agent. The reason why God can do so little for us is that we forget that the living virtue is in the Holy Spirit is to combine with the human agent. With the great truth we have been privileged to receive, we should, and under the Holy Spirit's power, we could become living channels of light. We could then approach the mercy seat and seek the bow of promise and kneel with contrite hearts and seek the kingdom of heaven with a spiritual violence that would bring its own reward. We would take it by force as did Jacob. Then our message would be the power of God unto salvation. Our supplication would be full of earnestness, full of sense of our great need. We would not be denied. The truth would be expressed by life and character and by lips touched with a living coal from off of God's altar. When this experience is ours, we shall be lifted out of our poor cheap selves and we ha that we have cherished so tenderly. We shall empty our hearts of the corroded power of selfishness and we shall be filled with praise and gratitude to God. We shall magnify the Lord, the God of all grace, who has magnified Christ, and he will reveal his power through us, making us a sharp sickle in the harvest field. Now, did you notice it says that we would take it by force, as did Jacob? It says that we seek the kingdom of heaven with a spiritual violence and bring its own reward. We would take it by force of J Jacob. Then our message would be a power of God unto salvation. How did Jacob take it? He wrestled all night. And when the day was breaking, he looked into the face of Christ and he finally saw who he was wrestling with. And then with his very fingertips hanging on for dear life, he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And friends, was he blessed? Why? Because his whole life was in what he was doing. He was holding on. And he wouldn't let go. And friends, that is the relationship that we have to have to the plan of salvation. We will not let go. We will hang on with our fingertips. We will take it by violence. We will. And we will succeed. Again from this book, 156, that last one was on page 30, this beautiful statement, will a, <clears throat> will a man take hold of divine power and with determination and perseverance resist Satan as Christ has given him an example in his conflict with the foe in the wilderness of temptation? God cannot save man against his will from the power of Satan's artifices. Man must work with his human power, aided by divine power of Christ, to resist and to conquer at any cost to himself. In short, man must overcome as Christ overcame, and then through the victory that it is his privilege to gain by the all-powerful name of, of Jesus, he may become heir of God and joint heir with Jesus Christ. This could not be the case if Christ alone did all the overcoming. Man must do his part 
He must be victor on his own account through the strength and grace that Christ gives him. Man must be a co-worker with Christ in the labor of overcoming, and then he will be a partaker with Christ in glory. So I want to tell you, friends, salvation is a battle. From morning to night, we're in the greatest battle that was ever fought. There was never anything like it before. All through the ages of man, time, men have fought this battle. Many have been victorious, but the majority have failed. Because they didn't understand what I'm telling you right now. They didn't cling to the promises of God. They, they tried to do it in their own power, and they miserably failed. And many went down to the grave being good men and good people, but they, God does not save good men. He does not save good people. He saves holy people, holy men and women and young people and children. He can't save good people. He must, he can only trust those who are wanting to be holy people. What does it says? Be holy even as I am holy. Be perfect even as I am as my Father in heaven is perfect. So perfection is the standard that God places before us, and He provides the power to reach the standard. But we've got to understand the battle in which we're in. We've got to understand the enemy. Now, some of you have served in the armed forces, I'm sure, and you know that that you you, to, be, to know how to fight a battle, you've got to understand the tactics of the battle and of the enemy. In the tragedy, we haven't really understood the devil yet, and what he's up to and how he works. But we must understand what he, what he does and how he works and how he, how he coerces and how he moves situations and people. And so we must see that as we approach this crisis hour that we are now in, we must understand how each one of us here can have the thrilling victory in our life that brings peace and joy and happiness to the life. I'm going to tell you another thing. I'm never discouraged. I'm never depressed. I was talking with Elder Pearson the other day, an old friend of mine. We worked in Africa together. And I told him that, and he said, Boy, you're better than Elijah. He said, he got discouraged. Well, friends, there's no time for discouragement. There's no time for being depressed. Because that is the devil's greatest tool, is to get you discouraged and to get you depressed and get you down, and then he'll kick you to death. And when I feel discouragement coming on, and I'm tempted, let me tell you, when I mean I read letters that come in and what some men are saying about me and, and uh, things that I'm facing... I mean, I'm tempted, but I, I just leave it alone. I mean, I walk away from all of that, and when I go to bed at night, I get down and say, God, it's yours. It's all yours. I did my very best. It belongs to you now, and the Lord takes it away. You cannot allow the devil to give, take five seconds of your time, because if you give him five seconds, you take all the rest of the day. And so when I'm tempted, I stop it right there. I will not be discouraged. I will not be depressed. I will not allow any of this to happen in my life because I know that if I allow myself five seconds of that kind of an attitude, it isn't going to be long that I'm down. And if I'm down, how many people are going to be affected when I'm down? You see? So I can't allow that to happen. And I, keep, I just keep claiming promises. How to beat the devil? Quote Scripture. He can't stand it. He'll get out. How did Jesus beat him? He beat him with Scripture. 
And friends, that's why memorization is so important. Memorize, 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 and bring these things to mind when I'm traveling along in, in airplanes or wherever I'm going in the world. I mean, I bring these things back to my mind. And the Lord blesses me for it and encourages me. And then I can encourage others like yourselves. If I, was, if I got discouraged, I couldn't even be here today. Because let me tell you, to get here, there was a lot of problems that came up. So I don't get discouraged. I won't get depressed. And let me tell you, friends, when you give your will to the Lord, Jesus Christ, when you give your will to Him every day, and then you let Him keep your will, then the fortress is there. The impregnable fortress is there. The shield is there. The hedge is there. And the devil can't penetrate. And he can only tempt you as he has permission from God. And God says, you won't tempt him more than he's able. You will not. And the devil can't. And God says, I will make a way of escape for him. And he will bear it. And the devil believes the Lord. You believe that? When the Lord, when the Lord speaks, the devil believes. And he trembles. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Was the thief on the cross perfect? I ask this all over the world, and I get a lot of different answers. Was the thief on the cross perfect? What do you say? Sure he was perfect. Well, you say, how in the world could the Lord make a man perfect? He was only on the cross a few hours, and he was dead. How did he make him perfect? And let me tell you why. Because the Ellen White makes it clear that the thief on the cross witnessed the, the, the trial in Pilate's judgment hall. And he, the Holy Spirit began to work upon his mind. He saw this man in all his beauty and, and his tremendous mannerisms and, and his way of, of reacting to the ter terrible things that were happening to him. And he remembered from his mother's knee... He, uh, she had read to him many, many times Isaiah 53. And he saw this as the sheep led to the slaughter. And, and suddenly, the Holy Spirit was able to write it into his mind that this is the Messiah. And there he is hanging alongside of the Messiah of the world in all the physical agony that Jesus had. See, the thief suffered just as physically as Christ did. And, and all that terrible agony, and all this agony, he turns and looks at Jesus, and the Holy Spirit writes it into his mind, that's the Messiah. And he accepts it in that moment. He accepts it. And he, he's forced from his lips. He cries out instantly. He says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And in that cry, my friends, was a confession of all his guilt. Of all the things that he'd done bad. Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, he wasn't a bad boy at all. He just got into bad company. He was, a good, he was basically a good man. He'd been raised by a Hebrew mother that taught him all these things. And there he is in this horrible condition that he's now he's going to die. And suddenly, uh, his mind is illuminated by the Holy Spirit and remembers everything that his mother had told him. And he accepts it and believes it. And he cries out, Remember me. And Jesus, in that, that horrible moment of agony, Jesus cries back, calls back to him,
today, right now, I promise you now, you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in heaven. And the, the thief accepts it right there. Believes it. Acts upon it. And in that instant, friends, justification has taken place. And God treats that thief like he'd never sinned in all his life. You know that? At that moment, as God the Father looked down on this horrible scene, here was this maddened throng, and every devil in the, in the whole universe is there. Why? Because their whole future depends on what happens here. And so they all come, and they're in this mob, and they're infuriated, and they're crying out terrible curses, and they're crying out terrible things. And before God is forced to turn his back on this horrible scene, because they're killing his son. He treats that sinner, that thief, like he'd never sinned in all his life. In Steps to Christ, uh, Steps to Christ, page 62. What did I do with it? No, here it is. In Steps to Christ, page 62, it says this. It was possible for Adam before the fall to form a righteous character by obedience to God's law. But he failed to do this, and because of his sin... Our natures are fallen, and we cannot make ourselves righteous, since we are sinful, unholy. We cannot perfect, perfectly obey the holy law. We have no righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. But Christ has made a way of escape for us. He lived on earth in trials and temptations that we have to meet. He lived a sinless life. He died for us, and now he offers to take our sins and give us his righteousness. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake, you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. And that's the way God saw the thief that day. He treated him like he'd never sinned. And in that instant of his confession, God was able to justify him because why? He was so sorry for sinning that he was ready to covenant with God to stop sinning. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, um, uh, verses um, 7, I mean, yes. 1 Corinthians 10, we read there. Um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 10. Let us read it together. Uh, First Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. In the ninth verse, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that, that ye were sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage of us by nothing. So justification only comes... When we are so sorry for what we've done, we are worthy of covenant with God to stop sinning by His power. Justification does not take place until that sorrow for sin is there. And when that sorrow for sin is there, instantly justification has taken place, 
And instantly then when justification has taken place, then sanctification is, ta is taking place. And yes, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. But it also begins with justification. And you cannot separate justification from sanctification. They go side by side together. When you're justified, you're sanctified. In, Christ, in, in uh, the book, Selective Messages, Volume 1, Ellen White comments on this beautiful subject on 366 of Selected Messages, Volume 1. And it says, But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul through with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. So justification takes place and is retained to the life because that we are not practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. If we have sin in the life, there is no justification. If we're practicing known sin in the life, there is no justification. If we're neglecting known duty, there is no justification. And friends, this is a serious thing because the majority of the Seventh Adventist leaders and pastors and laity don't understand this. And they, they're praying, God forgive me, my sins, but what they don't know, justification is not there until they're sorry for what they're doing and they want to have that marvelous experience of having the refreshing of the Holy Spirit by coveting with God to stop, to stop sinning. And then justification is instantly ours. And we're kept in that relationship of justification as long as our will is in God's will. And justification then, then begins to manufacture sanctification in the life, sanctification is character development. And the seal of God is character development. And when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in us, and then, what? He will come to claim us as his own. And so we must understand that justification is something that we can have, but we can't have it at our own price. It is only at the price of God, and that price is that God has the will, and that we're sorry for sinning, that we want to quit. And immediately if we slip and we make a mistake, instantly there's a confession, and justification is back in process, and sanctification goes on. In volume 2, of the Testimonies, page 355, we read this inspired statement. 355 of <clears throat> volume 2. It says, We are preparing to meet him who, escorted by a retinue of holy angels, is to appear in the clouds of heaven to give the faithful and just the finishing touch of immortality. When he comes, he is not to cleanse us of our sins or to remove from us the defects in our characters or to cure us of the infirmities of our tempers and dispositions. If wrought for us at all, this work will be accomplished before that time. When the Lord comes, those who are holy will be holy still. 
those who have reserved their bodies and spirits and holiness in sanctification and honor will then receive the finishing touch of immortality. And again, from the same volume, 505, it, she goes on to enlarge upon it. It says, none are living Christians unless they have a daily experience in the things of God and daily practice self-denial, cheerfully bearing the cross and following Christ. Every living Christian will advance daily in the divine life. As he advances towards perfection, he experiences a conversion to God every day, and this conversion is not completed until he attains to the perfection of Christian character, a full preparation for the finishing touch of immortality. There it is, friends. It's simple. It's not difficult. It's a simple piece of theology that says that if you love God with all your heart and soul, what you have failed to do over a lifetime, he can accomplish in a moment. Praise the Lord for that. Am I right? He can accomplish in a moment. It's, it's not some rigorous thing that we have to go through. It's simply being willing to be made willing to merge our will so completely with God's will that God can give us his mind and with his mind we'll think his thoughts and with his thoughts we'll live his life and by the power that God will provide, we will be victorious in our life. We will be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. We will have that hedge around us. We will have the impregnable fortress that God has provided. And we will stop sinning. And friends, what you're hearing today is the greatest plan in all the world. There's nothing like it. It's a beautiful plan that God provided the, that moment when he walked in the garden and he, he stood there with Adam and Eve hugging them to his breast as they wept great tears of remorse and cried out, God, don't send us away. We'll never do it again. And as God held them, their tears were coming down his cheeks too because now... Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He had laid his life on the line to redeem the human race. And in that tragic moment, what you heard today, he gave to Adam and Eve. And he's given to every generation, but tragically, very few in every generation have embraced it. And very few have experienced it. And friends, I want to extend it to you today not for anything that I have to give but God gives it to you and God has sent me here to provide this great thrilling message so that you can experience it in your own life and have the victory that you've sought for all your life and friends if you practice it if you do what God has said through me today you'll find joy and happiness in your life You'll find real joy and peace in your mind. You can go through the most horrible things and have peace and know that nothing can happen to you that is not the will of the Lord. Do you want it? Yes. Do you want that peace? you want that happiness? Do you want that joy of victory in the life? Friends, it's yours. God gives it to you now. Embrace it. Give your will to Him and He'll give you His mind. He'll give you His, He'll give you His power. To think his thoughts and to live his life. And he'll clothe you with the garment of his righteousness. Praise the Lord. Shall we pray?
God, we're so grateful for this thrilling message of righteousness by faith. We're so grateful, God, you've provided victory by your example and that, God, you walked every step before us and that every victory that you gained is our victory. Lord, bless this congregation, Lord. Many have come from far distances searching because they want a closer walk with Jesus Christ. Some have failed miserably. Some have been into sin very, very deep. But, God, they want out, and they want out now. And, Lord, deliver them, we pray. As they give their will to you now, Lord, we pray, surround them with that marvelous law, that righteous law, that shield, that impregnable fortress. Protect them from the enemy. And God, we pray, walk with them carefully, we know, until that day they can walk right out of this world into the kingdom. And we thank you for this answered prayer in Jesus' name.